welcome to the Digging Six Feet Under podcast, where every week we review each episode of HBO's original television series, Six Feet Under, with your host and licensed funeral director, Victor Rubio. Hello and welcome to the Digging Six Feet Under podcast. I'm your host, Victor Rubio, and we are here to discuss season one, episode three of Six Feet Under, titled The Foot. I want to take a quick moment to thank anyone who's been listening so far, and I just want to give you a quick update on the format of the show. Uh, I will definitely be having guest hosts soon, so if you could just bear with just one person talking on the mic this entire time, and pretty soon I'll be able to have dueling views and just open conversation regarding the show. So look out for that in the next coming weeks. Uh, That being said, let's get on to this week's episode. Episode 3 of Season 1 of Six Feet Under is titled The Foot, and it was aired on June 17, 2001. This episode was written by John Patterson and directed by Bruce Eric Kaplan. Our episode starts with the anatomy of a death, or death capsule. I'm not sure really which sounds better yet. I guess I'll figure that out as we go on. But we have here Thomas Romano and his assistant are cleaning out a dough mixer together. And once Thomas Romano is in the actual mixer, his assistant falls and accidentally hits the switch to turn on the mixer. I love the great shot here when Mr. Romano is standing in the mixer. And the way the shot is, is he's directly in the crosshairs of the mixer, uh, foreshadowing what's about to happen. Uh, Unfortunately, as fate would have it, Mr. Romano is chopped in half by the dough mixer and bleeds us into our episode. Which starts off with Nate and Brenda in the bedroom sharing some moments of intimacy. Uh, I like when Nate says, you know, he he. They're talking about whether or not they're going to sell to Kroner, and Nate opens up and says, you know, that he wants to sell to Kroner. He hopes he could, so he can move back to Seattle. And really quick, Brenda gives this rare, you know, once in a relationship glare of insecurity or, or vulnerability to the relationship. You know, the thought of Nate leaving shakes her. But she's quick to rebound and shake it off. She's really not comfortable showing that side of her. Um, Regarding this relationship, I said in the previous podcast, I wasn't able to speak about this relationship intelligently enough. Um, I I feel like I didn't have enough to sink my teeth into. But now we see in this episode where the relationship is going, you know, the push and pull and, you know, the saving face and whatnot. You know, there's a lot more to grasp onto to talk about it. Uh, We move to the Fisher house kitchen and Claire walks in just glowing and goes into, honestly, one of my favorite moments in Six Feet Under is just how she just snaps into this Broadway music piece, for lack of a better term. And in her mind, in her little dream fantasy, David and Ruth come out as supporting cast singing and dancing. You know, Claire's just glowing in in all the greatness. You know, it's just a really fun and funny scene. Uh, Particularly in this series and in life, I personally believe, this is my own thoughts bleeding into the show here, uh, I believe life is a constant uh, wave of highs and lows. You know, you don't ever get too high you don't ever get too low. If you live life right in the middle, you'll never be disappointed. Uh, As we see here, and we'll find out later in the episode, Claire is coming off an extreme emotional high, only to be brought down to a very low low. Uh, We see once she gets to school, you know, her car is defamed and all bad language, all just nasty stuff written for the foot action that went on in the previous episode 
with her boyfriend, Gabe. When she confronts him in school about it, there's a great line of dialogue that she hurls at Gabe, where she says, I wish for once the people wouldn't act like the cliches they are. And I think that's a really great, you know, independent line, Claire says, really giving us insight into her character. But back to the Fishers having breakfast at the Fisher and Son's house in the kitchen, uh, where they, they are discussing the possibility of selling to Kroner, which is obviously driving a rift between the family. Um, the discussion here hits all of the six feet on their characters here. You know, Nate totally living in the moment, wanting to sell now. David trying to stay true to his name, you know, the Fisher and Son's name. Claire, an afterthought, really, until Nate brings her back into the conversation. And Ruth doing what is best now, you know, realizing her mortality. You know, and I have to say, if I was here, if I was the character, or if I had to debate what side I would be on, I'm with David. You know, selling out feels so selloutish, for lack of a better term, you know, you know, you earn the right to be Fisher and Sons, and selling out sort of feels like you gave up, you know, uh, a great quote I always liked is, you know, giving up when you're ahead is not the same as giving up, and here surely, you know, the Fishers aren't giving up, but it sure does feel that way, a nice little dream sequence later on, and it's why I maintain Six Feet Under has the best dream, or in this instance, daydream sequences, you know, I'd like to think whatever's going on in your life, you know, your surroundings all of a sudden pertain to it. All of a sudden, any song is on the radio directly has to do with what's going on in your life. You know, and here when Nate, you know, he's driving and he comes across some protesters in the park, you know, he starts to daydream how the signs are calling him a sellout and whatnot. And obviously that's not true. This is a dream sequence. With that, the way they, they make the protesters seem like they're protesting Nate. It's not the most inventive idea. You know, it's not groundbreaking in terms of television or movies or media, but I like how close to life, how close to real life they play it. But heading back to the Kroner situation, uh, we'll see later on in the episode how Kroner basically waters down or cheapens the family name, the quality and, you know, the value behind funeral service. After the discussion, the Romano family is coming in to make arrangements uh, with David. And I just love the Romano family, the, the, the mother, the sister, whoever these family members are, just playing the typical Northeast stereotype. And what's great here is David reassures Miss Romano that Mr. Romano will look as good as new. There's a lot going on in this episode, funeral-wise, so I'll do my best to expound on most of what I can, the best I can. And I wanted to say right off the bat, Rico calls Mr. Romano Humpty Dumpty when he's explained as his new case. And, you know, that's not something what an experienced funeral director would say. Uh, Am I saying that never happens? No. But there's generally too too many other members of the staff, you know, your part-time people who will work to just make your funeral home run. You know, there's too many of them walking around to just be tossing out titles like that. Uh, a few moments later here, Nate is picking up Mr. Romano from the morgue. And this is definitely one of those moments where I believe the process was dramatized for TV. And I think it's validated when he's... When Mr. Romano is from goes from the stretcher on the prep room to the prep table. When he's bringing out Mr. Romano, you know, there's no way ever a removal of this magnitude was performed by two guys, you know, lugging, for lack of a better term, lugging the body bag. 
And I have to say, it's moments like this in the media, you know, your television, your movies, whatnot, that gives a gives off a bad vibe to us, you know, the funeral industry. Um, many a time I've shown up to a family house to make a removal and I always get hit. It's kind of almost the first question I get, you know, are we carrying him or her out in a body bag? And as, as a funeral director and someone who works in the industry, we try to make it as dignified as possible, even when you, the family, aren't there, like here at the morgue. On top of this not being dignified, the way the two of them are carrying Mr. Romano out, I have to say on a completely other, let's just say, technical level, it's incredibly inefficient, to be honest. You know, the stretcher just makes everyone's lives easier. You're, you're rolling as opposed to two people just carrying. Even knowing this was fake, what closes out this removal scene is when they kind of just, the two of them, tossed Mr. Romano in the back of the van, kind of like swinging it to get momentum to go in. And I just cringed watching this as a viewer and as a funeral director. My favorite shot of the episode in an episode of Great Shots, uh, we have David and Keith walking through the fan slash lamp section of the department store. And here the camera starts out, you know, showing us where the fans are and the camera just pans down, symbolizing how Mr. Romano died earlier and our death capsule. Uh, I just thought it was your typical six feet under humor of, you know, just a clever, funny little shot. But back to earlier when the Fishers were discussing whether or not to sell the Kroner, the end result of that discussion morning meeting was that they were going to sell. So just like that, and this definitely only happens in television, Nate heads over to Gilardi to start the paperwork to sell to Kroner. This scene here with Gilardi, where Nate accepts his offer to sell to Kroner, was off the wall with sanitized euphemisms and just real corporate talk. To me, it comes off as so impersonal that I wanted to try something different here to really hammer the point home. I personally always viewed, me being a big podcast fan, I always viewed playing audio from the topic you're discussing as lazy, but... I think it fits real well here. What I'm going to try is I'm going to play back some audio of the conversation Gilardi and Nate are having when discussing the sale and, you know, how quick Gilardi is to sanitize everything and anything about the funeral industry and just makes it so much more businesslike when in reality, you, you can't treat death like a business transaction. You know, you, you need real people who care about it working together to provide a meaningful ceremony. So our first battle of sanitizing comes here. I never realized how much money there was to be made in the funeral business. Death care industry. If you've been listening to the episodes I've been doing, you have heard me say the term death care industry. When the media talks about my field, they, they do use this term. Does it bother me that this term is used? Not totally, as it is an all-encompassing term of everything in the industry. But even when they're talking business, you know, behind closed doors, Gilardi just can't turn off the corporate talk. Your father was a nice guy, but he didn't know how to run a business. Well, my dad was never in it for the money. I think he's more concerned about, you know, helping people. You want to help people join the Peace Corps? This here isn't so much corporate talk as much as it shows Kroner's true intentions. A funeral home is a business, and while we are there to make money, because that's what operates the funeral home, we are also there because we care. 
to be quite honest, you don't start in the business wanting to make money. There's a certain part of you that wants to help families in a time of need. Feel free, go ahead and ask any funeral director. They're not in it for the money. Gilardi here just reveals the beast that we aren't here to help people. We're here to make money. And when money is your number one priority, your quality of care for family dips. So how exactly will this work? We won't change the appearance of your unit at all. Maybe a little cosmetic upgrading, perhaps. Funeral homes used to actually be homes back in the day. The funeral home owner or even employees would live upstairs. Me personally, uh, during my schooling, I lived above a funeral home. It was a great way to gain experience and I even got paid to learn, basically. Uh, many funeral homes still to this day house students attending mortuary school and even more. There are still funeral homes in which the funeral home owner still lives upstairs. Uh, sure, this may come off as scary to some, but it's a way of life. And to be even more honest, the bodies in your funeral home are just that. They are dead. Zombies and whatever culture follows that is a way of media and nothing more. I say all of that to say Kroner calls the Fisher Funeral Home a unit. And even with everything I just said, you see this is where David and Nate grew up. And even still where Claire and Ruth live. To call it a unit is, is so, you know, cattling the herd, sheep-like. It, it really devalues what a funeral home is and what a funeral home provides. Preparation of loved ones will now take place at a centralized location with services, several other units, technicians on staff constantly producing. So it's like a little factory of embalming. Preparation for visitation. Kroner here mentions a centralized facility. And to his point, when you have several funeral homes under one umbrella, he's right. It is much more cost effective to have a centralized facility, which in normal circumstances would mean a lower cost to you, the consumer. But as we already know, they are here to maximize profits, not save you money. The problem I view with a centralized location is, and is exactly what Nate says, it's a factory of embalming, you know, slash dead people. You're categorized by a case number and are basically put through a cookie cutter system. Me personally, as a funeral director and of the places I've worked, I always believed in the confidence of being able to tell a family that I was servicing, your family member is here in our facility, in our funeral home, and not outsourced anywhere else. Again, to some families, they may not care, but as someone who provides for families, I am that much more confident in my ability to serve a family knowing where they are. Now, we maintain a small fleet of vehicles, hearses, funeral carriages, dead wagons, removal vans. There's a line to which I play, and you can hear as I've been talking in the podcast. There is different terms you use when talking to families versus behind closed doors. If you've been listening, you've heard me say preparation when regarding to embalming or facility when talking about a funeral home. They start to become one of the same. And I say that to say Kroner quickly corrects Nate uh, with his use of the word hearse as funeral carriage. And I have to be honest here, I've heard both terms and even coach to describe a hearse. Uh, there's something about the stigma of the word hearse that our industry, for some reason, wants to shy away from. The problem here is the rest of the family-owned funeral homes has had to compete with the corporate field that's just becoming stronger. So we're all sanitizing death in a way. A lot of these code words for what we are actually talking about is needed so you can talk about these items in public. Different than when making arrangements with a family. Um, all in all, you can see how Kroner and Nate told the line of corporate versus organic terminology. And they, also, 
they, they soften the hard realness of death. Unfortunately, in 2016, and me, myself, a product of the system, have come to use some of the terms for, you know, for better or for worse. And I will say, though, uh, that this short scene uh, definitely did a great job of juxtaposing the two. In Ruth's storyline, she is coming to grips with her husband's death and trying to purge the past. Uh, literally here, she is cleaning out Nathaniel's clothes to donate. Uh, she has a great line of, is it possible a donation center would turn away a donation, which was pretty funny. Uh, Ruth's friend, Amelia, is urging her to get out and experience life, which Ruth wants to, but is a tad bit uncomfortable getting out of her shell. You know, there's a great metaphorical shot here when they flip the mattress and Amelia asks if Ruth feels any different. And of course, the answer is no, which discourages her from stepping out. After a little neuroticness from Ruth, where she's flipping the pillow, again, just a smaller metaphor from the flip mattress, she calls Amelia and they head to the racetrack. And we'll get into that a little later on in the episode. So we've had Nate swing from wanting to sell to now wanting to not sell. His behavior when he wanted to sell pairs in comparison when he doesn't want to sell. You know, we see how the Gelardi interview rubbed him the wrong way. And the daydream gave him the revelation of wanting to keep the business. And I have to say, I love his enthusiasm as to why he doesn't want to sell. In the episode full of great quotes, you know, he says, I've been running away from something my whole life. And that's why I know I want to do this. Which, depending where you are in your own personal life, you know, that really hits home. And here he convinces David and Ruth to keep the business. There's a moment here in the episode where Fisher and Sons loses a call to Kroner. Just because I'm using slang here, I'll try to explain it. A call is, you know, a new deceased, a new family you're going to serve. And they lose the call here to Kroner. I have to say, this does definitely happen in the business. They discuss a little guy from Kroner and David discuss why. And I have to say, at, at that point, they would already know. So it's not like you would be arguing with the guy from the other business coming to take the deceased into their care. But this does happen from time to time for various reasons. You know, whether a family is just more comfortable with another funeral home or something happened in the arrangement with the original funeral home. You know, it does happen from time to time. And I just thought that was something interesting just to add to this little bit that happens. When Nate gets to the prep room with Mr. Romano, to say he puts him on the table inefficiently would be a compliment. It would be an understatement. I have to believe here, as I was referring to earlier, that it's dolled up for TV. Again, this gives a bad rep to the funeral industry. But Nate could have very easily you know, swung the pouch, which Mr. Romano was in, over to the table and opened the body bag from there. Uh, a lot of these protocols have been perfected over years and years, and you almost have to go out of your way at this point, which we kind of see with Nate here, to have a catastrophe like Nate has. I love the six feet under humor here when Nate is on his high horse of helping to serve families, and his first task after having this revelation, he's throwing up and you know picking up Mr. Romano in pieces. Gilardi approaches Nate after refusing his offer to buy Fisher & Sons. To which now Kroner counters with buying the house across the street to open a Poseidon 
society. Making this a soft funeral industry note here, what Poseidon society is or was is basically a subdivision of Kroner, which exclusively handles cremations. They use clever wording like society, so you feel like you belong to something, especially where your cremains, which are your ashes, are placed. I don't like to name names, and I won't be naming names on the podcast, but there is one out there to which that this was adapted off of. Uh, if you're smart enough, you could do some research and find out. You know, Cremation is more popular in 2016 than it has ever been, and you could see the groundwork of that being laid here God, 15 years ago in 2001. And this segues into our scene in the house that Kroner just bought with Nate and Brenda. And as I said in the beginning of the episode, I like how Nate and Brenda, their relationship is opening up. Nate, after having this revelation and not wanting to sell, finally makes a commitment to stay and can open up and be comfortable with Brenda, revealing all his insecurities. And it's at that exact moment, Brenda sort of shuts down and leaves abruptly. But... There are nice metaphors going on in this entire episode, and the cat and mouse going on here between them is, to me, the best. Later on, we have Amelia taking Ruth to the track to take her mind off things. And, you know, we have the start of many Ruth's rants or breakdowns. She's a nice, cute couple just at the track, hugging, kissing, on a date, a cute couple, whatever you want to call them. And, Ruth seeing this just unloads all her mental anguish on them, and more importantly, us as the audience, the viewer. Ruth, during the races, she's able to open up more, and she's unloading more and more of this mental load on her back. This does cost Ruth, though, because in all of her excitement and just opening up, she does happen to lose 25 grand. And another great line here by Ruth, when she's asked by her sons, how did she lose the 25 grand? You know, her answer isn't, I don't know, I did this, I did that. She goes, it's not lost, it's just not mine. Don't speak to me like a child. Typical six feet under humor, and it's just a great way. I'm going to talk like a child, but then please don't treat me like a child. I love the sketch comedy pseudo skit that goes on when they discover Mr. Romano's foot is lost. Uh, there's a great humor scene when, you know, Ruth shrieks, oh my God, when she's looking in the dryer while they're all trying to figure out what happened. And it only turns out to be a Kleenex. The Fishers here, they know they have trouble on their hand, and we are cleverly told what happened to the foot in our next shot. In an episode of Great Shots, this one starts from the ground up, and it shows Claire walking you know, with a nice, strong, revengeful look to go ahead and place the foot that's missing in her boyfriend Gabe's locker. All the while, the Romano family is hilariously insisting Mr. Romano wear shoes in the casket, and... The humor here is because we know where the foot is and they're just insisting he wears shoes. Um, David leaves and he heads to Keith's house. And here in Keith's house, they're having a, I want to call it a separated but in sync conversation, basically just about inane topics. And in my opinion, those are the best conversations, just conversations about nothing. And here's where we get the, the news where David finds out what happened to the foot. Claire took it, and he confirms it with this little mini flashback of when he was walking down the stairs and Claire was walking up. I love the scene here when Keith is interviewing Gabe as to the whereabouts of the foot, and David, who is actually really scared, plays the bad cop in this good cop, bad cop scenario. You know, there's a nice irony there. I want to throw this out there. Uh, When Gabe and Keith are talking, 
Keith mentions how they can detect if he was able, if he touched a foot. And email me at digging six feet under at gmail.com or comment on the Reddit post. Do they really have this solution that could detect this stuff? Was this only in Saw 6 and this episode? I've never really heard of it before. Uh, but please, write to me if anyone has any insight on this. I'd love to hear about it. But here, then we go to uh, Mr. Romano's wake. And what's funny here, you know, the family comments on how good Mr. Romano looks. And he ought to look good because they charged a fortune. I can't comment fully as I don't get to see what Rico had to work with from the beginning. But I have to say, restorative artwork, in my experience, is, is not as prominent as people would believe. Uh, have I done some? Absolutely. Some truly horrific cases. And, you know, you use all logical and crafted technique to make it all work. If I could go off assumption and assume Mr. Romano basically got chopped in half, I have to imagine the restorative artwork done here was minimal. Uh, I say that because... I assumed his face was fine. And with your main goal being an open casket, you've already won more than half the battle with if your face is fine. You know, your face or the head is, is the only body part you cannot use clothes or, or a hat to cover. Uh, so now, you know, we would move on to his torso. And we see in this episode, as Rico is doing, you would basically have to embalm the top half and the bottom half separately. Then you would suture or industry's slang for stitching, uh, you would suture them together and make Mr. Romano whole. Uh, I do want to say, I want to note here also, I, I promise to get into the actual embalming process in future episodes, um, but this is one of those cases here that, you know, the show paints a big scary image in your head, when in reality, it, it's nothing more than a few extra steps than your normal embalming for this sort of scenario. A shocker here when the family demands the foot end of the casket be open to see Mr. Romano's legs. Uh, we find out once they open the casket and the leg is there, or the foot is there rather, we find out Rigo embalmed a, a lamb leg to replace the foot. Uh, I just want to point out here, and I'm sure other people were thinking it, no person could be employed in any profession with the excitement and enthusiasm Rico has with this. Again, maybe dialed up for TV, but that's just way too excitement or enthusiasm for what essentially is a missing body part. Um, we get the slight reveal here that Rico interviewed with Kroner, which will play out into our next few episodes. But for now, we could see how hurt David is, uh, especially at this time that he's up against and he's fighting Kroner. You know, and it's it's impossible to not for it to not feel personal, like a dig at the Fishers. But back to the wake, uh, David and Rico they share a moment when they both make it seem like there is going to be a casket creeper, which is a woman who jumps up onto the casket. You know, and here they make it seem like this is a usual occurrence. I have to say, in my experience, I've never seen it quite like this. It does happen. I, I don't want to say it happens at visitations or wakes. It more happens when we are removing the deceased out of the house, you know, because that's just such a more raw picture or image than them being dolled up in the casket. But that's just my take. I've really never seen it the way they, they portray it in this episode. Uh, while the wake is going on, Keith and Claire are out looking for the foot. And here they, they share a nice 
heart to heart regarding David. And what I liked here was, you know, again, how the show translates to real life. It, it often takes a significant other or even a friend of a sibling or relative to, to truly appreciate the value of your family member. Here, you know, we see it takes Keith opening Claire's eyes about David and basically for Claire to appreciate what David means to her and you know to also realize what she doesn't have with her brother David. I just like the realism of that moment between these two basically out of focus characters coming into focus. I really liked how they tie that together. And finally, as our episode winds down, Claire returns home after searching with Keith uh, to find the building across the street which Kroner had bought is burning down. And again, just the final beautiful shot in an episode of Great Shots, uh, they're, when when they're, they're told of the fire across the street, they all run outside and you, know, you have Nate, David, and Ruth are outside looking in the building and they're in focus, and but Claire is just a few feet away from them, behind them, out of focus. Uh, the camera work and the setting up of shots was just great in this entire episode. And we see here our final shot of the episode, our random dog Freckles finding our lost foot. And that wraps our episode three podcast. Uh, I want to take a moment to thank everyone that has been listening. Please bear with me and my droning tone during the podcast. Uh, I will be bringing in people here to discuss the shows with. And so there's more of a just a one-sided view on things. And if you yourself by any chance would like to jump on an episode or any questions, show moments, or inside industry information you would like me to touch up on, uh, please shoot me an email. I'm at digging six feet under at gmail.com or look for my podcast post on reddit.com slash r slash six feet under. Uh, thank you all for listening and please join me next week as I discuss episode four of season one titled Familia. Thank you for listening to the Digging Six Feet Under podcast. Join us on the next episode as we review each episode of HBO's original television series, Six Feet Under. Please search and subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes under Digging Six Feet Under. The Digging Six Feet Under podcast is in no way affiliated with HBO or Six Feet Under. And the views expressed here are solely that of the hosts. No infringement is intended.